Father, thank You for every meeting from the first in the morning, the seminars through the day, the fellowship across the tables, the impromptu gatherings on the sidewalk, the shuttle rides, music, the ministry of food and hospitality. Thank You for the sweet spirit. Thank You for our leaders. Thank You for the beautiful humility and nobility that lets us look up to them. I pray now, Lord, bless us. You have before. You've promised to be amongst us. We humble ourselves, Lord. We know that we're not worthy. But we're Your children. And in a spirit of humility and confession, we just praise Your name for the greatness of Your loving kindness and pray that You'll gather here with us as we now open the Word. You've been here, I trust, Lord. You've inhabited our praise. You've heard our prayers. Now bless this one as we open the Word and as we think about the history of the church and its future. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to clarify just a few things. Last night I made a statement that could have been misunderstood. Preachers make them all the time. It helps when you listen to the preacher with the eyeglasses of love on and know the preacher as he's to be known in Christ. Because we live and die by our words and sometimes we say things we wish we could retract. I don't wish I could retract it, but I think I need to explain it. I said last night that I had stood up to my mother, so I was ready to stand up to some other situations. I think you need to understand my mother to understand that comment. My mother was uh, expelled from Broadview Academy six weeks before she graduated. She was caught smoking. My mom doesn't blame the academy. And I don't think I've ever heard my mom talk about legalism in the church. And she always taught me to be responsible for myself. And that just kind of transitioned over into spiritual things. So you're not my excuse you might occasionally be a little bit of my reason, but in the end, I'm responsible for myself. And you know what? So are you. My mom was a wonderful mother, is still a wonderful mother. But when I was a boy, I learned that she meant what she said, so I learned to obey, which is interestingly enough, if you read Child Guidance, one of the first lessons a child should learn. She wasn't reading child guidance, but she was taking advantage of six millennia of parenting tradition passed down to her by her mother and father, and she passed it on to me. And I'm smart enough to know that the people writing the books don't know as much as the collective wisdom of the last 6,000 years. Now, I'm not against books, and I'm not against learning. Learn all you can. Read good books but test them all by the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. My, uh, my mother taught me to tell the truth. She taught me not to cuss and swear. Even though I had to taste dial soap a time or two in my mouth. I never doubted my mother's love. And I want to tell you, I was a disciplined young man and I probably needed more than I got. I remember one day she, she came and got me from school. And you say, well, that's good. Well, no, that's bad. I walked to school. I didn't need my mother to come and escort me. The problem was she had taught me to clean my room before I went to school. And this day I decided to skip it. She came and got me so I could go home and clean it. Yippee-yahoo until she told me, you're going back to school now. 
And every one of those other sixth graders in the public school wanted to know why I had to go home in the middle of the day. I can remember once, I didn't know that someday God would sanctify my lips. My mother was trying to get it that way with human efforts, and those matter. But we lived at the top of a big hill, and I'd ride down the hill, and there were a couple bullies a little farther down the hill, and they had long hair, and they were... Now as a dad, I understand there was no dad in the picture. They were looking for attention. But you know, they bullied everybody, and I didn't like it. So one day I decided I was going to get back at them. So I'd go to the top of the hill. I saw them playing basketball, and I said I was going to ride that bike down the hill. And when I went by their house, I was going to yell out a name like chicken. I think it was a kind of a self-definition of the guy on the bike, personally. And then I'd go around the block, because, you know, they'd try to get me, but it was a big enough hill, I had all the momentum, and they couldn't catch me. I wasn't very smart, because eventually they were going to get me, and one day my mom said she wanted me to go to the store, and I said, well, I don't want to go. And she said, well, you're going. Well, I don't want to go. And eventually she drug it out of me, and I told her, I said, Ronnie and Johnny, they just happened, one of them shared my name, Ronnie and Johnny are up the street with another guy who didn't like me, and if I go to the store, they're going to get me. And I think my mother's words were probably too bad. (laughs) So I got on my bike, and it was like I was riding into Death Valley. I was about three houses away from my house when they walked out. I stopped my bike voluntarily because... I knew I couldn't outrun them on flat ground. There were three of them, and they'd get me. They, one of them straddled the front wheel and put his hands. In those days, we had big, high handlebars. And they put their hands on the handlebars, probably on top of my hands. And all the while, I'm thinking, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And they threatened me, and they said a bunch of things to me, but they never gave it to me. And then, as I pedaled off, I turned around to see where they were chasing me, and I found out why. Because three houses behind me, standing on the sidewalk, was my tomboy mother, standing like this. (laughs) She told me later, if only one of them would have beat on you, you would have been on your own. But if they would have double-teamed you, I'd be there. But she made me go to that church school. I begged, I pleaded, finally I cried. Please don't make me go. (laughs) Parents should be parents. Kids aren't wise enough to make their own decisions. They get over it. They're resilient. Really, the only thing a child can't stand up underneath is not being loved. And I don't mean sentimentality. I mean the the rock kind of love. There came a day when I told her, as a Christian, I'm not going to the store to buy you cigarettes anymore. That's what I meant yesterday. She's probably watching right now. She doesn't smoke anymore. Can you say praise the Lord? She's a nurse, mother of four, somebody I really love and respect. You know, I tried to teach my kids to clean their room and make their bed. I didn't do as good a job as my mother did. Probably in a lot of things, I don't think I did quite as good a job as my mother's done. But I'm not done, and Jesus isn't done. But the other day, my son came to me, and I I had three boys. We were standing in the house. This happened not this year it happened. 
And my son said to me, he said, Dad, you need to get on the internet and watch this video by Admiral, well, it's a, he said a general something. I know now it's Admiral McRaven. He's the admiral in charge of the special operations for the Marines. He said, yeah, Dad. It's all about making your bed. I looked at him kind of funny and he said, sorry, Dad. I'd said it all those years. It seemed like it didn't sink, but you know, somebody else said it and it sinks. You know why you bring your kids to church and prayer meeting and Vespers and all the socials? Because they're going to connect with some other adult that's going to pick it up where you can't get it to move and they're going to move it for you. That's why you send them to Christian schools, Seventh-day Adventist Christian schools. You know, our Seventh-day Adventist Christian schools have some challenges. That's because our kids are in them. You have to be an objective parent or you won't be a good partner with the teacher for raising your child. My mother didn't stick up for me when I was in trouble with the teacher. I was in trouble at home. And it worked. Now, if your child has really been wrongly treated, you might have to get involved, but coach him. Coach them to love and pray and talk to their teacher first because usually the teacher doesn't mean to do anything wrong. And oh, our teachers, they have a hard job because they didn't birth these babies and raise them up. They just got handed to them when they were partway down the road in process. And they're helping you fix some of the things that you didn't get right. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, that at the end of the age, the love of many would wax cold. Do you remember why? Because of lawlessness, he says. I want to tell you something that's happened in our society that I want you to think about. Over the last generation or two, as we've gotten more wealth, we focus more and more of it on our children. But if you indulge the carnal nature, every time you indulge the carnal nature, you are minimizing the capacity to love. So, there's nothing wrong with gifts and kindness and love and affirmation and warmth, but it's very important that you teach your children how to love through service. It's in the home first. If you're too busy to teach them how to work, you're too busy. Labor-saving devices are not good for children. Everybody needs how to run a broom. Everybody needs to know how to hold a dishcloth and a dish towel. Every boy needs a little help from his dad or his mom, if there's no dad in the picture, to learn how to start a little lawnmower and how to be careful not to do yourself in and cut the grass. Everybody needs to be taught how to serve. All of nature and all the universe works this way. So when our homes don't work this way, we shouldn't be expected, we shouldn't be surprised when our kids grow up and it doesn't seem like they're that terribly interested in anything but themselves. They're being taught to be customers. But the church is not a business. We're a family. And we take care of each other and we serve Jesus because He's the elder brother of this family. And we serve His Father who's our Father because, because He's so good. Because He's legitimately God. Because He's the Creator. Because He's the Redeemer. One or two more things before we look at the history of the church. I haven't said it much at the local church that I'm at because I haven't been there that long. This September, I will have been in my church for five years here in Michigan. I'm so thankful for the Michigan Conference. But I'm at the place where it's probably true and I could say it anyway. And I certainly got to the place where I could say it back in Cicero because I pastored there over 19 years. But I would tell the people, I would say, you know what? I know more bad things about this church than anybody else. And it was true. And I loved those people. And many of them loved me. Because the love of Jesus was in my heart and I knew them in Christ. And the love of Jesus was in their heart and they knew me in Christ. I want to tell you, friends, Chesterton said, 
that it's been said of Christianity that it's been tried and found wanting. He said, actually, it's been tried and found difficult, so it hasn't really been tried right. Your time to pray in the morning, your time to lift up before God the gratitude you have for Him, to pray for the people in your life, for your church, for the people that maybe don't appreciate you or the ones you naturally don't appreciate, It's going to take a divine miracle to give us that sweet, primitive, collective godliness, not just individually. It's going to take a lot of discipline and choices, but I want to tell you, there is nothing like a beautiful church family. All it is is a foretaste of heaven. And yes, it takes a ton of work, spiritual work, but I surely do love the people of God. How about you? All right. Let's go a little farther. If I can bring that slide up there. This is the last comment before we take the major part of our subject matter. Ellen White writes, and it's written in many places, how touching to see the youth and the old age relying one upon the other. The youth looking up to the aged for counsel and wisdom. And the aged looking to the youth for help and sympathy. This next sentence has guided my pastoral ministry, and I want to tell you, the last church to abandon cross-generational ministry and cross-generational philosophy should be the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is as it should be. She says in Conflict and Courage, which was a daily devotional, She wrote, the aged Eli with the youthful Samuel. This is as it should be. God would have the young possess such qualifications of character that they shall find delight in the friendship of the old. That they may be united in the endearing bonds of affection to those who are approaching the borders of the grave. Now, it is no surprise and shouldn't come as a surprise to you that the world right now is trying to make every old person look so irrelevant that it's not funny. It's as if the young people will never be old themselves. But your churches, which are Jesus' churches, the body of Christ, and the church that I'm associated with, we need to be modeling what society is starting to wake up and say. Every young person needs a a discipler or a mentor. You know what? We've known that all along. The family can't be replaced. And so I'm appealing to you not just to uh, uh, make it your church's mantra, but make it your personal missionary endeavor to connect with the young people. Let God expand your heart. Parents, teach your children to learn to address an older person, to look at them, to speak up. Help them to spend time with them and find out what interesting people they are. This is one of the neat things about the mission trips is you've got older people sitting around telling stories that young people, they almost can't hardly imagine because the world's so different now than what it was. People sit around and everything's virtual and they use their thumbs. Well, back a generation or two, people used the rest of their body to do exciting things and sometimes things they would never repeat. And the stories are pretty interesting. All right. This book was printed in the last few years by Larry Hurtado. It's entitled The Destroyer of the Gods. I have a goal. Sometimes preachers are inductive and they let you figure it out. Sometimes they're deductive and they tell you where they're going. I'm going to tell you where I'm going because I want you to know what my point is because I'm going to go through a fair number of slides. Here's my point. We know that Saul, before he was Paul, persecuted the Christian church. But what I want you to know is that the animosity of the Jews towards the way, as it's referenced in the New Testament, only mirrors and maybe with not any more vehemence or animosity than the rest of the pagan world. So here's the nutshell of what I'm about to show you, and I'm going to document it. This isn't hard to do. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist book, but it is an excellent historical resource. And what I'm about to show you 
is that while the early Christian church was loathed, hated, and misunderstood for the first three centuries, it managed to conquer all the gods of the Roman and Greek pantheon. And eventually, because it had done the conquering, Constantine would make it the official religion. Now in America, that's running in reverse. A generation or two ago, you never would have seen laws that officialized and formalized same-sex marriage. The reason it got formalized is because the culture has changed. But that's the very same reason that there is no Zeus and no Jupiter and when I say to you, if I called you, if some pollster called you up and said, do you believe in God? You wouldn't say which one. You see, the Christian and Judaic understanding of monotheism conquered the pagan Roman pantheon of gods. How did they do it? How did they succeed, especially when they were so misunderstood? The dominant pagan view of Christians was negative often involving wild rumors among the general populace and more studied ridicule and critique among the elite. We have some of that same critique among the elite today, do we not? A new and wicked superstition is one such negative characterization of Christianity by the Roman writer Suetonius, 2nd AD. During the 3rd AD, there were, 3rd century, there were occasionally imperial-sponsored and empire-wide efforts against the movement. These were spasms of violent suppression, especially under certain emperors such as Decius. Now, in his book, Hurtado quotes Rodney Stark. And this is what he says, A successful religious movement must retain a certain level of continuity with its cultural setting, and yet it must also maintain a medium level of tension within that setting as well. That is, a movement must avoid being seen as completely alien or incomprehensible. But on the other hand, it must also have what I mean by distinctives, distinguishing features that set it apart in its cultural setting, including the behavioral demands made upon its converts. I want to tell you something today, that the churches that are growing in America are what we call high-demand churches. The churches that are dying in America, and I just had someone talk with me about it in the last day or two, are the churches that have aligned their value system with the culture, and they now have none of this left. I want us to think about this, especially in relationship to the ministry to our young people. There has to be a clear difference between being an insider to the group and an outsider. Classic liberal forms of modern Christianity, so most of the mainline churches of America have often been concerned to align themselves with the dominant culture, affirming its values, even shifting in beliefs and practices markedly to do so. But the danger in this can be that unless there are also distinctive features and demands of being adherent of the group, people cannot see the point of becoming one or the worth of remaining one. Now, I'm going to tell you, before we're all said and done, how that church of the first three centuries after Jesus survived. Not only how it survived, but how it grew. Not only how it grew, but how it conquered. But I want to give you just a little bit more of some of the firsthand references about this history. Pliny says that he released, this was the governor of Bithynia, which is Turkey. He was a servant of the Roman Empire. He released any of these, talking about Christians, who would confirm these claims. In other words, they said, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. He would release them by reciting a prayer of the gods to the gods, making supplication to the image of the emperor with incense and wine, and cursing Christ. If they said, I'm not a Christian, and they would do these things, he would let them go. Things which it is said, those who are truly Christians cannot be made to do. Even though he found no indication of criminal actions, Pliny nevertheless judged Christians as holding a perverse and extravagant superstition. This is the common mentality of the day. He also predicted that his firm actions 
would stem its spread and restore the revenues of the pagan temples that were almost deserted, along with the celebration of the traditional rites of the gods. But it didn't work that way. Let's go on to Lucian. The poor wretches. This is another Roman historian. The poor wretches have convinced themselves first and foremost that they're going to be immortal and live for all time. In consequence of which they despise death, even willingly give themselves into custody. Most of them. Celsius, another historian, characterized Christians as lower class simpletons, easily deluded, their faith more to be pitied than admired. Do you hear echoes of this in the 21st century? Don't be discouraged, friends. You've got good company. The early primitive Christians who conquered the Roman pantheon. The general pagan reaction to early Christianity seems to have been negative. Popular and sophisticated complaints, allegations, ridicule, critique, harassment, and even some state-approved efforts, at least by local authorities such as Pliny, to stamp it out. If you were to go out in the streets of almost any city today, at least in most Western nations, now this is Hurtado, the author of the book writing, and ask people, do you believe in God? You would probably get one of three replies. Yes, no, or I'm not sure. Likely no one would ask you what you mean by God or which deity you have in mind. Even modern atheists presume that there's only one God to doubt. We may think of religion as something you do. For example, on Sundays, or if you're Jewish on Sabbath, or if you're Seventh-day Adventist. But in the Roman Empire, what moderns called religion was virtually everywhere, a regular and integral part of the fabric of life. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clarify where I'm going in the next little segment here. I'm going to tell you what you're going to hear, and then when I'm done, I'll probably tell you again. What I'm about to suggest and explain to you is that religion was everywhere in Roman culture. It just wasn't Christianity. Everywhere. Members of Roman households, the family and their slaves too, gathered daily to reverence the household lairs. A lair was just a name for a household or localized god. So they gathered every day for worship too. I wonder if we're gathering every day to worship the true God in freedom. I'm appealing to you, friends. While you're at camp meeting, give Jesus permission to rework your family schedule so you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Residents of a given city might be expected to take part in periodic expressions of reverence, such as processions and sacrificial offerings to the guardian god or goddess of the city. So let's imagine there's a parade going on and it's for the guardian goddesses of the city. And you don't stay. From the lowest to the highest spheres of society, all aspects of life were presumed to have connections with divinities of various kinds. There was really nothing like the modern notion of separate secular space, of a life free from deities and relevant ritual. What they're saying is, what Hurtado is saying is, everywhere you went, there was religion. It was in the common space. It was in the economic space. It was in the educational space. It was in the home. So some of these gods you'll recognize. If you were going on a sea travel, you might want to make an offering to Poseidon. If you wanted healing, maybe Asclepius. Matters of love, Aphrodite. You've heard of the Roman pantheon, which included Juno, Jupiter, Mars, and Venus. And the Greek pantheon, which included, included Zeus, Hera, and Athena. There were gods for the guilds, divisions of the armies, city authorities, the empire, and the emperor. In the Roman era, generally, piety meant a readiness to show appropriate reverence for the gods, any and all the gods, and outright refusal to worship deities was deemed bizarre, antisocial, and worse still, impious and irreligious. Now, I want you to think Christianity against this backdrop. There's only one name given among men whereby you must be saved, and that's who? Jesus. The exclusivist stance of early Christians was so odd, unjustified, and even impious in the eyes of ancient pagan observers and critics that they often accused Christians of being what? Now, you've probably never heard that before. Uh, this man was was uh, 
actually an advisor to one of our theologians. Uh, this man sat on the critiquing committee of one of our theologians at the BRI. When I talked to him about this book, he recognized the name immediately, knows the man personally. The idea that early Christians were called atheists is amazing expose of how religious the age was, but they were all idols. For example, in the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, which you've probably heard stories about, an elderly second century Christian leader, the hostile crowd demanding his execution are pictured as shouting, away with the atheist. Given the social pressure against their stance, we may therefore wonder how consistently and fully Gentile Christians carried through in the abandonment of idols called for by teachers such as Paul. Now let me tell you how it worked. There were about 60 million people in the Roman Empire. In the first century A.D., the historians say there may have been a thousand Christians. Well, we know there were more than that because the Bible tells us in one day there were 3,000 baptized and later on the number was up to five. So, but the secular historians say in the first century there may have been a thousand Christians. In the second century from 100 A.D. to 199, they say the number probably grew to about 200,000. And in the third century, from 200 to 299, the number went all the way up to around 30 million Christians. Now that's before Constantine made Christianity the state religion. There were people who came to the first councils after religion was legal and they came on their stumps and as amputees, they came branded and burned. In those first three centuries, Christianity broke the back of the Roman pantheon. Maligned, misunderstood, and persecuted, but they won the day for Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? That primitive Christianity amazed the masses. Eventually, over time, things began to change. Christianity was not like Judaism. It wasn't ethnic. It was trans-ethnic. It didn't matter what uh, national background you had. Christianity was translocal. It didn't matter where you were. We were mandated. They were mandated to go everywhere in the name of Jesus, and they did. Christianity is one of the reasons that books were adopted over the scroll much sooner because when these people met, they needed a place to put more information than a big long scroll, and a book was more efficient. Christianity made slave owners and slaves themselves one at the foot of the cross, and the ecclesia, which was a name for the governing Roman who had privilege and citizenship, became the name for the church. And so can you imagine being a slave and your slave owner is at the same meeting and you're listening because most of Rome was illiterate. But can you imagine the amazing education taking part as week by week and day by day the church gathered to hear the reading of these scrolls and it changed things around. Roman men were amazingly perverted. But when they became Christians, that changed. Little bitty babies, especially if they were girls, were thrown out to die. Sex selection is something you have heard of probably. It's estimated that the Roman Empire needed 500,000 new slaves every year. And probably 150,000 of those were for sex trafficking. And most of them came from these girls that nobody wanted. But the Christians would adopt them and raise them up and lead them to Jesus. And you know, the ranks just swelled. It was beyond the belief of the Roman constituency to think, now we're going to get down to the brass tacks. It was beyond the realm of understanding almost. It was preposterous to think that the Creator God who made the heavens and created the earth and all of its infinite diversity, actually had a redemptive, reconciling, personal interest 
in anybody. But this is what Christianity teaches. And it was the love of the Christians for Jesus. They did lay down their lives. It was the love of the Christians for each other. It was this very simple, primitive, childlike faith. I didn't say childish. I said childlike. And the love of God, even though the empire was decidedly prejudiced against those early Christians, the love of God and the high moral standards of the church, like a mighty army, move the church of God. And today, if someone says, do you believe in God? You don't say, which one? Why does this matter? Because nobody should ever tell you that it's the high moral standards, that it's the, the high-cost churches that are causing our young people to run away and are running off people out of the church. There may be loveless people in the church. There may be socially illiterate people in the church. There may be people with low social IQs in the church that nobody's talking to, and they might be part of the problem. If they're their friends, love them. Help them grow. But don't be confused. The love of Jesus is for them and the one that might be offended by their missteps. The truth of the matter is, the love of Jesus, the simple, beautiful fact that I'm a child of the Creator of the universe, this is the driving force of Christianity as it was then, so it must be today. So what did it look like? The purplish color is the first 150 years. The green color is the next 150 years. And Constantine didn't come about for another 20 or so years. I referenced to this quote before, the Christian ideal has not been tried, found, and wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I want to assure you this evening, friends, that the highest standard of the Christian church, the one from which many people would love to have a legalistic list, the one from which people would love to tune out the voice of God at times, is when God says, you need to love that person. You need to forgive that person. You need to love them enough to follow Matthew 18 and go talk to that person. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Verse 6. Every child should know these by heart. Every adult should know these by heart. I have a hard time reading verse 6 because I memorized it in the King James Version, which is probably one of the best versions to memorize in. But the Apostle Paul did not preach out of it. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. I like to say to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. I'm going to pause right there. An angel, in this case, with a megaphone voice, is the way God envisioned His church communicating for Him. The word means messenger. And Jesus didn't give the work to the angels. They're working to prompt us. You can have the aid of the education of the angels. Take advantage of it. Pray. You can have the presence, the securing presence of the angels. Pray. But at the end of the day, the one who does the talking is usually a human being. What do they have? They have the eternal Gospel. Listen, friends. Paul writes in the book of Hebrews talking about the Old Testament church, that they had the Gospel preached to them. I want to tell you the Gospel is eternal because the Gospel is God Himself. Before there was sin, there was a holy law. And without a carnal bent to sinning, the law is only good. After Adam and Eve sinned, the law can't save us. But before they sinned, when God said don't do it, that was a Gospel message. If she never would have taken from the fruit, God's law, which represents who He is, would have been in a perpetual continuance. And I wouldn't be here preaching here today. 
And the heartache that comes to you and I would never have been written in the annals of history. This is an eternal gospel, and when the sin problem is finally dealt with, the eternal gospel will go on. It existed before sin, it'll exist when sin's done, because the eternal gospel is God Himself. Saying to those who live on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tribe, and people, He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Now, I have to absolutely batten the hatches down on this. This is not the kind of fear that repels you from someone. Take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This is a holy reverential awe for a God who can't stand to see a planet lose out on eternal life. That's why it's a loud voice. Psalm 130, verse 4. This is the kind of fear the psalmist is writing. And this is the New American Standard. And I'll tell you, I write in my Bible. I write neatly. But I've got Revelation 14, 6 and 7 next to this verse because this is an eternal gospel message which offers forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 130, verse 4. It says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It's not the kind of fear that motivates you to act out of self-preservation. Those people are going to end up with the mark of the beast. It's the only thing that's going to survive the end days and the trouble that's coming. Nobody's going to die for a doctrine. They're going to die for a doctrine that put them in touch with the living Christ. I won't be dying for the Sabbath. I'll be dying for the Lord of the Sabbath as I honor Him by keeping it. Fear God, for there's forgiveness with Him. That's the message. The hour of His judgment has come, but God is not looking to condemn. He's never had the condemnation mentality. He's looking to redeem and to reconcile. The judgment is the final closure of the, what the universe knows about sin. Sin is going to go away, but before it goes away, the final words have to be said. The final pronouncements have to be made. And worship Him. This church has been raised up to protect worship. This church is the only... I'm going to be careful. This church is not the only church that knows how to worship. But this church is raised up to preserve worship when all the other churches don't know how to worship. So don't go to the world to figure out how to worship. They do know how to worship. Oh, they do. They have music stadiums and other stadiums. And the go to these places don't mind making large offerings. And they have no problem praising. And they know how to hype and work people up. There will be a false revival before there's a true one. And if you live by feelings, not by the Word of God, you'll be swept away feeling good all the time and you'll wake up when it's too late. Worship Him. Worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. This church that's preaching this message is going to hang on to a clear understanding that we didn't happen accidentally. We were designed to be loved by God. Churches have abandoned the inspiration of the Scriptures, which is written into this line. But God's people are not going to. And I want to tell you something. Our dear Jesus is so modest. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. When He said, He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much, we didn't know back then what we know in the last year or two. We're studying parts of of the atom and parts of matter that we never even could have begun to believe even existed a decade ago. But Jesus put it all together and it's all held together in Christ. I want to tell you, we know so much about what you can only see through electron microscopy and sometimes only by 
accelerators, atom molecular accelerators, that there is absolutely no way in the world that every new level of order that we find came into existence as an accident. It was created by an omniscient, omnipotent God. Evolution has about run its course. Intelligent people know that there are systems within systems. And they couldn't have developed in a linear fashion. They had to be put together by somebody who knew what they were doing. And it's an awesome thing. And every time you watch a sunset or a sun come up, every time you hold a little bitty baby, every time your blood clots on your finger, and every time a bruise eventually goes away, you can be praising God that in spite of sin, He's created a way to have a good existence. But it was by design. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on nine, on verse, on the second angel's message or the third, but I do want to skip down to the last part of the third, verse 12. Here is the patience or the perseverance of the saints who keep the what? They keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. Turn back over to chapter 12. Verse 17, last verse. It's very similar. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and they have the testimonies of Jesus. Testimony of Jesus. Turn over to Revelation 19.10. The Bible does explain itself. And I don't want anyone who's not as familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist message as maybe you are to get out of here without the simplest understanding of what constitutes the remnant church of God. I fell at his feet to worship him. John was swept off his feet. Now this is an apostle who's written part of the Bible and he's carried away by the razzmatazz of what he's seen. It's almost overwhelming. That's why we're directed to be in the Word because if it could overwhelm Him in heavenly places, imagine what the mastermind deceiver is going to do to us we mortal, easily impressed humans. You can't afford. You're supposed to be building an edifice of faith. You can't afford a single day not meeting with Jesus because you need to put another brick in the wall every day. And you need the steel reinforcement of singing some good hymns. And you need the mortar of prayer to know that it all has meaning and God was talking to you in the Word that day. Don't miss a day to be with Jesus. You don't get another one back. I fell at His feet to worship Him, but He said to me, don't do that. And don't you love this? We were made a little lower than the angels, but we're going to, be, we're going to actually be elevated to a posture beyond them when Jesus comes back to get us home, it's just not exactly how it seems like it should work. But this angel said, I'm a fellow servant of yours. Isn't that a beautiful way to live? We need to live the same way. And your brethren, we're a family, friends. Church not a business, it's a family. Your brethren, your sister, who hold the testimony of Jesus, Worship Jesus, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I know that we've kind of co-opted that phrase to represent the ministry of Ellen G. White. And it's exactly correct and completely appropriate. She has the marks of a true Bible prophet. This church, while it's a little David-sized church, has a Goliath-sized impact. And God has been doing mighty works because he knew we were little, but he said, and he says to all of you in little churches in one of those minor prophets, is it Zephaniah? Don't despise the day of small things. These little churches are the little bitty capillaries. They may feed in to a little bigger artery. But I want to tell you what, the heart that's pumping the blood out and back is Jesus. But the spirit of prophecy is more than Ellen White. The spirit of prophecy is every time that for the love of God and humanity, you do what you're supposed to do to lovingly proclaim the message of hope, mercy, and truth to a dying world. 
And it's not just for the preachers, although I hope the spirit of prophecy is moving in my heart, mind, lips, tongue tonight as I stand before you. But this work of edification and exhortation, even correction, there is a spirit in this church like the spirit of John the Baptist that loves deeply and dearly, but will also proclaim the truth even at a price. I've got my baton. I entitled this message, If You Were the Remnant, Grab the Baton. If this baton was full of a million doses of an anti-cancer agent, and I said to you, they will expire on December 31, 2018. Spread them as fast and as far as you can. You can't charge money. You have to do it for love. But this is all there is. And if you don't get them out by then, they're wasted. I want to know what's in your heart. I want to know whether or not you'd say, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I don't know how I'm going to put gas in the car. But I know there's a million people out there who could live if I made the focus of the next six months finding as many people as possible and convincing them that I actually have a cure. We don't think enough. Mrs. White says we should stand on the threshold of eternity and we should look at what Jesus has in mind for us. The real center of attraction is not the golden streets. It's not the Garden of Eden restored. It's Jesus. It's the fellowship with the angels. It's freedom. What we have to offer is way better than this. In 2008, both the men's and the women's Olympic team in Beijing were abysmal. It's a strange coincidence but both of them in the 400 meter relay in the second lane on the last lap at the last pass on the same day, I believe, they both botched the passing of the baton. Now, if you read the ESPN article I have, America owns that race. They got disqualified in a pre-trial heat. The Jamaicans, with only 1% of the population of America, dominated the day. The writer said, speaking of the dashes, she, he said, the Jamaicans made ashes of the Americans in the dashes. But you know, there's a lot of races that are lost because the baton doesn't get passed. That night, 11 out of 30 teams, 32 teams, dropped the baton. This is what the runners said on the men's team. Davis Patton said, I take the blame for this. Tyson Gay said, I take the blame for this. Bubba Thornton said, you can put it right on my shoulders. He's the coach. For some reason, that same spirit was not in the woman's team. My hand was there. The stick was there. What I'm telling people is that the stick had a mind of its own. It's not my fault. It's not her fault. It's not either of their fault, but the author of the article wrote, correction, it's the fault of both. Every generation gets a chance to pass this thing. Every generation needs to be trained to receive it from their earliest days. Their soccer, their cello, their judo, their violin, none of it is as important as knowing our dear sweet Jesus and making sure that the kingdom of God is sought first. I was stunned the first day I found out in my sweet little Cicero church, which was a 400 and some odd member church, that some of the parents were skipping adventures to take their kids to play soccer. 
There is nothing intrinsically wrong with soccer until it comes before the Christian discipleship of your children, and then everything is wrong with soccer, and it probably reflects what other things are wrong in your home. Sports is a god of this age. I have a book on my shelf back in Bering Springs. Sports is religion in America. The only thing is, we're coming up to a day and time when the last generation is going to get the pass and maybe there won't even be anybody on the track to carry it. No, there will be people on the track to carry it because Ellen White says in the book Acts of the Apostles that the call will be answered. The question is, are we intentional about the discipleship of our own lives, our own influence, our own money, our own education, our own children, which are Jesus' children, and the highest order of self-actualization if there's such a thing exists. Actualization in Christ would be to be used by God to bring one more soul across that spiritual Jordan and know they have assurance in Christ and they can face the future without fear. I once ran the Chicago Marathon, at least most of it. How's that for confession? I was there in Millennial Park. 45 other thousand runners in different corrals. Kind of makes it sound like we're cattle. More appropriately, we're more like horses. They put the fast ones at the front and the slow ones at the back. The crowd was so big it took me a half hour to get to the starting line after they shot the blank off. I went past the big silver bean. I was running down underneath one of the roads when somebody came up alongside me. I want to tell you, when you train for a marathon, you better have a little bit of time because it tends to dominate your life. And as I was starting off, I was feeling good. I think I genuinely felt good for 18 miles. But as I was starting off, this guy came up alongside me and he's, he's, he's running pretty good and he's talking to me. And I'm looking at him, something isn't right. But I knew immediately he wouldn't finish the race. Now take a guess. Out of 45,000 entrants, how many finished the race? Just in your own mind, get a number. It costs you about $150 to do this. Their right minds pay $145 to make themselves feel terrible after about three, four, five hours of beating their body to death. Well, it works like this. When you get into your 40s and you realize your youth is slipping away, you've got to prove to yourself that it's not all gone. I looked at that guy. I could listen to that guy and know he wasn't going to make it. You know why? Because he was running in cowboy boots and jeans and he had no bib on. He had not prepared. He wasn't even really an official entrant in the race. Thirty-seven thousand plus people finished that race. You know why? Because once you decide you're going to do something like that, You prepare to do it, and then when it's time, you do it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us lay off every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run the race with endurance. Every time I came back from one of those runs and I had the last tenth of a mile in front of me, I would speed up and I would quote this Scripture, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and He sat down at the right hand of God. Glory, hallelujah. You're no ordinary church friends. 
You've been entrusted with five distinct truths. Most Protestant churches from the day of Luther forward got one, maybe two. Jesus gave us five. And He gave us an educational system and an understanding of the human body to boot. What are we doing with it? What in our lives is so important that we can't make some time to take the baton and run the last leg of the, of the race? What is so important that our kids need to know this? Do we think they need to be Mr. PhD or MD or D-Min or THD or whatever it is, Smith, Kelly? There's nothing wrong with intelligence. But the master of the universe wrote through the prophet that the study of the Scriptures would expand the mind like nobody else. And if you've been to any health seminars in Michigan and listened to Vicki Griffin, you know the mind is like plastic and it does grow. It does expand. It does gain capacity. Our church schools have an advantage because the home, the church, and the school are working together and the Bible is the centerpiece of study. And God designed that we could get brighter and healthier and stronger in that environment. I'll tell you what my goal is. <laughs> my goal is that I could commission and inspire as many people as possible to be like it says in the Old Testament, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news. You've been given good news. Don't let it be twisted into some kind of works-oriented, got to assure myself and God it's going to be okay if you don't love Jesus, start there. That's where it starts. And yes, that is law and grace combined. It's the two together. It's not cheap sentimentalism, nor is it without affection. It is the combination. But I want to tell you, friends, the motivation that's going to take us through, the motivation that needs to be in the heart of our kids is that they love Jesus and they love not their lives unto the death. And like the early Christian church, it's going to look like the world has us in a headlock. You can't buy. You can't sell. But the mighty power of the Holy Spirit's going to come down and He's going to break the arm of the adversary and set us free. And we're going to go throughout as a mighty rushing wind empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to win, not lose. And I'm anticipating that we make the last lap and we take the good news all the way up to the gates of heaven and we cast our crowns there before Jesus. But this baton is the reason. This good news is the reason. This eternal gospel is the reason. And brothers and sisters, I'm appealing to you. Recalibrate, renorm, reprioritize. Start in your private, personal world. This church is not a business. Don't try to run it by business practices. Run it by the inspired writings. Run it on your knees. Run it in love for each other. And run all the way up to the gates of the kingdom. But whatever you do, don't drop the baton. Father, it is incomprehensible that You would make us Your children, rebels and wretches that we are. And yet transformed and wonderfully remade through the power of Your love and belonging. Your glory is all the more exhibited by the degree of wandering that's represented in our lives. And thank You that Your arm is not short, but that it can save. And thank You that You're a God abundant in mercy. Thank You for this glorious message You've given us. And forgive us when we've inadvertently affirmed our status as the remnant church when maybe our definition was far too narrow. Indeed, Lord, that's what You've called us to. That's what the message represents. That's what the body is supposed to do is communicate that all can be a part of the family of God but the time is running out. Lord, I want to pray that nobody here tonight would live in fear of You, only the holy reverential fear that You're God of grace and mercy. And that yes, indeed, judgment will come. You don't overlook sin. You paid a high price for it. But I pray, Lord, replace whatever may be in our heart that's the wrong kind of fear with the right kind of holy reverential awe 
that recalibrates and remotivates and refocuses us to serve you out of true, holy, principled love. Forgive us when we thought about the future like the future doesn't include your coming. We've given lip service to it, but you've said in the Old Testament, they're so far from me. They're serving me with their lips, but their hearts don't reflect. And Lord, we must know that their lives then did not reflect the real prioritization of heaven. So I'm praying, Lord, I believe your Spirit has been amongst us. And I'm praying, as your Spirit has moved on people's hearts, that they would know, as the person who came up to me last night knew what you were asking of them, what changes must be made. For indeed, Lord, you've put the baton solidly in our hands through the generations that have preceded us through some faithful servant of yours, parent, teacher, preacher, co-worker. Thank you. Oh, praise God and hallelujah, thank you. And please forgive us corporately when we've taken the blessings and used them for the American dream. And save us from imbalance, Lord. You've given us more than most. Give us joy in using it for You. And teach us how to properly order our own homes. Please seal this knowledge and this decision in the hearts of those listening here tonight. May we go out rejoicing that You didn't pass us by. That we get to run the race. That we have a part. Whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's up front in public. We're all pressing together in the name of Jesus. Thank You so much for all the talents You've put in our lives and our corporate experience. And we're praising You tonight and thank You for this Michigan Conference camp meeting. Bless us now as we retire, we fellowship, and we rest. In Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.